Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In the 2012 midterm election, Pennsylvanians voted 50% to 49% Democratic over Republican in U.S. House races. Of the Commonwealth's 18 congressional seats, 13 were held by Republicans, 5 by Democrats. This unevenness has left some saying the district boundaries were gerrymandered, redrawing congressional district lines to favor one party or another. District lines are redrawn every 10 years following a census so that congressional delegates more accurately represent the will of a changing population. In Pennsylvania, these lines are redrawn by the party holding the majority in the state house. A joint effort between Keystone Crossroads, a collaborative of Pennsylvania's public radio reporters, and Penn Live Patriot News has produced Over the Line, an, act, an examination of the state's redistricting process and the equity thereof. Joining us today to talk about a couple of court cases that are examining Pennsylvania's congressional boundaries, WITF's Emily Previty and from Philadelphia's WHYY's Lindsay, Lindsay Lazarski, both of Keystone Crossroads. Both of you, thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We're going to focus mostly on the two court cases. There is one before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and one before the U.S. Supreme Court. And let me just give a little bit of background here, what the court, the judges are looking at here. They're looking at the partisan tilt of Pennsylvania's map, uh, whether there was an intentional creation of a map advantaging Republicans, the majority party, and a link between gerrymandering and uh, resulting polarization in Congress, as well as voter frustration and disengagement. So the question is, Emily, let me start with you. How? So, um, well, the argument in the state case is that the Pennsylvania's current um, congressional district map violates multiple causes of the state constitution. So um, free expression, association, equal protection, um, the free and equal clause, basically the Democratic voters are being discriminated against due to their political views, um, as demonstrated by their voter registration and their actual voting activity. Um, and then to which the defense's argument is, where's the actual harm? So uh, they questioned voters in the case about whether they'd been prevented from contributing to a candidate, registering to vote, voting, um, switching their voter registration. Um, the answer to all of those questions was no. Uh, I think, and Lindsay can talk more about one of the voters who testified um, or in the, or in the, I believe she testified in the federal case that made a stronger argument for that point, but we can come back to that. Um, and then another point from the defense is that political cons- considerations are allowed under the law, which is true. But the law also says you, it can't be an extreme partisan gerrymander. Doesn't doesn't say where extreme is, and so that was also part of the thing that um, they were trying to show in this case. The the, the plaintiffs that Pennsylvania is extreme. By the way. Uh Emily covered mostly the state court case and Lindsay the federal case. But I, I want to follow up, Emily, on something you just said, that uh, by law, politics is allowed to be considered. Explain that a little bit more. So an example of that would be um, protecting incumbents. Um, you know, that's uh, the argument. I mean, political consider And again, because the law doesn't define where the line is, it's a little hard to explain what's okay and what's not. And maybe there was this was elaborated more um, on in the federal case, and Lindsay can speak more to it. Um, but incumbency protection just means that when you redraw the district, so you redraw one district, 
in a way that the former representative is now in another where there's an incumbent um, and they're both running. So that you're allowed to control for that to avoid it. Um, you know, the argument being in support of that, that incumbency protection means more senior members of Congress, which is beneficial to the state because they can amass experience and power. That doesn't really sound fair. I, I mean, in, in some people's eyes, they may say that incumbents already have a huge advantage because their names but they're, are But if they're the drawn news. into a different district, um, oh, okay. then so it may, a different it's a different base. Um, I don't, and like I said, I don't know if that was elaborated more okay. on in the federal case. Well, let's uh, let's turn to Lindsay and talk about the, the federal case. So what were some of the arguments being made in that case, Lindsay? Yeah. Hi, Scott. So, yes, I covered um, the federal case, and it was actually in the Pennsylvania Eastern District Court um, in Philadelphia. So it's a federal court. Yes, mm-hmm. it was in it was in federal court, and you know it was about um, about twenty Pennsylvania voters. Uh, the plaintiffs were arguing very similar things to to what Emily mentioned in the state case. Basically, uh, their argument was that um, the state legislature, uh, Republican leaders in the state legislature, intentionally drew the lines um, to rig the elections to to have a predetermined outcome in the elections, giving Republicans an advantage over Democrats. And instead of using, uh, you know, some sort of, um, I think Emily said, like a, a free speech or um, or that type of argument, they're using this uh, kind of interesting um, uh, part of the, the U.S. Constitution called the Elections Clause. Basically, the Election Clause uh, gives state legislatures uh, the authority to set the time, place, and manner of elections. And what they're saying is that the state legislature interfered with that, um, with that power um, by predetermining who was going to win. So they're making this argument that the state legislature violated this Elections Clause and, and that's why they think that the map is unconstitutional. And they're demanding a new map, and I believe they're demanding a new map in the state case as well. And, and, and they're demanding a new map before the 2018 election, correct? Exactly, which has you know great consequences for a whole number of parties. I believe in the state case, Emily, maybe you can speak to this, was that there were some Republican interveners, people who are you know invested in campaigns, have spent time, money, um, on campaigns and will seriously be affected if there is a new map. Right, but the judge we didn't didn't hear from them, and the judge okay. basically was like, you know, we we got we got their point, and that was kind of the end of it. We sort of moved on. Um, we we did not hear from them in the state case. But the, I mean, and that's something really interesting that these cases have been moving at rapid speed because. Um, if, Correct. if the plaintiffs are successful, um, you know, this this needs to move, this needs to happen before the 2018 midterm elections and primaries. And so that was, you know, to follow up on that. And just while this case is technically before the state Supreme Court, it was just to get into sort of and it's not that what I'm about to describe, it's not that it never happens. But it's not typical practice, and this goes to the point of um, trying to get these cases expedited, um, doing them on a compressed timeline. This was filed in Commonwealth Court, and then um, uh, you know the plaintiffs filed a, a King's Bench petition, which is just a request for an expedited um, case progression, basically. And so the state Supreme Court, um, you know, had Commonwealth Court basically act. The judge, um, Kevin Brobson, is the judge who was presiding, uh, you know, act basically eh, kind of as a hearing officer in a way, creating findings of fact. Um, he will do analysis in his opinion, but it's not going to be binding. And then the state Supreme Court is going to consider that and what will be an actual ruling in January. And there are expected to be some oral arguments prior to that. So we will go back to court. This is complicated. Yes. And yes. Scott, every every step along the way, the courts had the opportunities. The defense said, no, let's stay the case. Let's slow this down. Let's wait to see what the U.S. Supreme Court says about a case out of Wisconsin. So every step of the way, you know, there were motions to dismiss, motions to stay, and the courts have just pushed these cases forward. So they are they are moving at rapid speed. And, and you could tell that in the courtroom. There was a lot of, I don't know about uh, the state case, but in the federal case, there was a lot of fumbling. There was a lot of, um, you know, 
papers filed at the last minute, uh, people being dispo- deposed, uh, disposed, you know, uh, as the trial is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there was at less- one point, mm-hmm. the, one of my favorite points in the trial was the defense, one of the defense attorneys stood up and said, we're drowning here. So, I mean, you could see that there, the pressure was on for, for both sides. <laughs> That, uh, so. That's interesting. That wasn't. That was definitely not the mood. I would say in the the state case. Um, but we they were very 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 long days. Um, you know, eight nine hours. Ten, I don't know if we got to ten um, in court. And then you know, for the reporters, then you have to go home and start writing because you can't have laptops in the the courtroom and start producing and stuff. Um, and, and the attorneys were going back to prep for the next day. So it was, it was grueling for everyone who was there, I think. But, um, uh, I, you know, not the sort of borderline chaotic scene Lindsay is describing in federal (laughs) court. I wouldn't say it was chaotic. I said borderline. I said borderline. But, you know, you could, you could tell that everybody was feeling the pressure of, of trying to do the best they could, like both the defense and the plaintiff. You know, there is some irony here in that, uh, very often the public complains about court cases dragging on for months and years and you don't hear about anything for sometimes three, four, five years. Uh, and normally it is not a good thing to rush something through. But in a case like this, Lindsay, as you said, you have uh, people who are saying, OK, we, we have to get this done because we want some kind of relief. We want a change before 2018 or before at least the primaries in, in, in 2018. So this is a little bit unusual. Yes, definitely. Well, let's talk about some specifics of what you heard in the courtroom. Uh, Lindsay, let's talk about the federal case. And there was something uh, that was uh, discussed called the Terzai Files Data Sets. And that refers to uh, Pennsylvania Speaker of the House, Mike Terzai. What about that, and what was the testimony that uh, was uh, tied to that? Yes, um, absolutely. So uh, there were some hiccups as to, you know, how uh, the plaintiffs actually received uh, this data. Um, It was only received uh, during the discovery process, I believe, after two court orders. So, uh, you know, this was something that the defense did not want to release, did not want to reveal, um, but eventually uh, were forced to uh, under the the judge's rulings. And basically, what was interesting about this data was that it it included partisan information. Um, So it had um, not only uh, voter registration information, but it also had information about um, uh, election results. Uh, mostly um, from, I believe, 2004 to 2010. So um, in the data, you can see how a certain voting precinct uh, leaned, whether they leaned more Republican, whether they leaned more Democratic. And they were looking at these, you know, presidential elections. So elections where, um, you know, 2004, 2008, where Democrats performed really well. So that information, uh, you know, two uh, legislative staffers said that information was considered and was used um, to create the map. Now, to what extent that information was used, uh, that was really unclear. You know, they said there were a number of other factors, other information that was used in creating the map. So, But used how, Lindsay? Exactly, exactly. How, how was it used? That was something we never really, um, I feel like, uh, got to the bottom of, or, or that's, that's not really clear. Uh, the, the best that, that we heard to answer that question was that it was considered. It was considered, you know, among many other factors. Hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. 
We're talking about a couple of uh, cases, both on the federal level and state level, that have to do with redistricting congressional uh, boundaries here in Pennsylvania. Our guest today uh, from Keystone Crossroads Project, uh, WITF's Emily Previty and WHYY's Lindsay Lazarski. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And we'll take some phone calls in just a moment. But uh, when before we went to the break, uh, Emily, Lindsay talked about the, the federal case and some of the testimony. Uh, the, court, the state case was a little bit different in the way the testimony was presented or at least evidence that you heard. Right. So the reason why the evidence Lindsay was just talking about um, made it into court uh, in the federal case, why the testimony um, from the staffers was heard in the federal case is because the court waived, at least partially, um, something called legislative privilege, which um, the point of that is to avoid, you know, legislators being yanked into court to explain every single vote that they make. But um, often in gerrymandering cases, and I don't know if it's the majority of the time or not. That's something I'm interested in and have been asking around about. But that generally, um, you see, you hear about in gerrymandering cases, specifically, it's a kind of um, lawsuit where the court may very well, at least in part, waive this legislative privilege where there doesn't have to be testimony given or evidence. Um, and in the state case, that didn't happen. Um, so that couldn't you know, the, the files, the data sets we're talking about, the testimony from staffers, none of that um, made it to court um, in the state case. However, one of the experts uh, testified about the data because he'd seen it, knew about it, um, and said that he believed that um, the precinct's partisan leanings might have been used in creating uh, the 2011 map. And so um, the decision that Judge Bropson made was to allow the plaintiffs to submit um, the some of this information under seal so that if the state Supreme Court wants to refer to it, they can. Um, he explained that his role was to create as complete of a record as possible. Um, but earlier on, so the, the federal courts had to compel um, this information uh, you know, twice from what Lindsay is saying, um, com- compel the defendants uh, to, to produce it. He didn't do that, um, you know, because of the, the legislative privilege thing and his decision on how to to treat that. So that's a big difference. Um, well, you- we should also note, oh, so two things. I'm noting this f- uh, for purposes of disclosure. Um, uh, Kevin, Judge Robson was elected as a Republican. Um, I, I wouldn't say, you know, just my own sort of, uh, takeaway from the case, I wouldn't say it seemed like he necessarily favored anyone. Ran the trial very professionally and fairly, and everything. But well, a judge with, with yeah. right, yeah. But you know, the legislative privilege thing wasn't waived. It often is, at least in part, in gerrymandering cases. And he's a Republican, so. One thing I'll say is just by uh, your explanations or what you're saying this morning is that the two of you got uh, quite an education in uh, the judicial system uh, because th- these cases are pretty complicated uh, from what 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 you're describing and probably a good lesson for people out there that this is what a courtroom is like on, almost on a daily basis of, of what you're hearing. We're talking about uh, something that uh, that has a great impact on a lot of people and you know, two court cases handled a little bit differently, but uh, yeah, we're we're learning a lot there. Let's take a phone call from uh, Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jim. Uh, this is a, a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, I, 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 to the uh, listeners, I think it's probably kind of complicated, and I believe you you mentioned that. The thing to, to keep in mind, however, is from the standpoint of the plaintiffs. Probably the best-case scenario would be that the existing maps would be thrown out. And if that happens, what's likely to happen is that the maps are going to be uh, taken back to the people who, who draw the maps, who are partisan Democrats and Republicans, and it isn't likely that we're really going to have a, a lot better maps. They might be somewhat better, 
but not likely to be an awful lot better. Uh, your uh, correspondents will, will know that uh, back in 2010, legislative maps were thrown out and, uh, and they were redrawn and they were marginally better, but not very much better. The only solution that is likely to uh, really fix the problem is to, uh, to, re to change the way that our legislative maps are redrawn. And uh, uh, that's, that's like, I'm involved with an organization called Fair Districts PA, and uh, we have two laws, uh, bills in the legislature, uh, the Senate and the House, to actually change the way that the, the uh, uh, districts are, are redrawn. And the, our bills would have an independent, uh, nonpartisan uh, uh, organization that would uh, redraw the maps. And we think at Fair Districts, we think that's the real way to fix this problem. We actually have two bills. One is in the Senate. It's Senate Bill 22. In the House, it's uh, House Bill 722. I would encourage people who agree with us to contact your legislator and tell them to support uh, Senate Bill 22 and House Bill 722. Thanks. Hey, Jim, thank you very much for your call. Emily, even before the program, um, we received a, a Twitter, a tweet, I should say, uh, from someone who asked if we were going to be discussing uh, Senate Bill uh, 22. Uh, the courts, just to be clear, the courts will, when these decisions come down, will it change how Pennsylvania's Pennsylvania's legislature draws its con congressional boundaries? Or is it just that, and, I'll, and Lindsay, I'll ask you the same question with the federal case, or is it just that what happened the last time was either correct or incorrect? Well, so, and Lindsay can jump in on this because it, it's referring to something else that she's covered closely. I'm th I'm thinking about the, um, the decision by the state Supreme Court to uh, change the way gaming funds are uh, distributed or the, the Mount Airy case. So they ordered the legislature to actually change, um, change the law. So... I mean, I don't, that, and that was a question that I was actually thinking of when when Jim was talking. I don't know if there's anything that do. I guess my question is: Must the court send these maps back to the legislature and say redraw them, or are there other things that we could expect from the ruling? I don't. I'm not sure. Lindsay, mm -hmm. what do, what do you think about that? Um, so in um, in the federal case, um, the plaintiffs are asking uh, the court to consider. Um, this new rule set, right? Um, a problem with these uh, gerrymandering cases, not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country, is that there's not a clear standard as to when something is partisan gerrymandering right. or not. So that's kind of like the crux of, of all these cases. So in the federal case, uh, the plaintiffs put up a witness, uh, a, young, a young woman, um, an engineer, um, and mathematician named Anne Hanna, and she outlined these five rules that legislatures and the Pennsylvania legislature should consider when drawing the map, where you wouldn't need to have partisan data uh, to draw the map. And um, she walked us through some maps, uh, some you know um, archival maps uh, from the 40s and I believe from the 70s that showed how you could have districts that aren't using partisan data. So they offered... I wouldn't say, you know, a standard, but they offered an alternative that the court could consider and say, okay, use this criteria if the court wanted to do that. But it's really unclear, um, yeah. you know, what what the court's power is on that, whether they can say, legislature, draw a new map, or whether they can say, you know, uh, you have to consider this this. Um, this new criteria. So that, and, that should be something we should watch and, and something that should be really interesting because it has, you know, impact not just in Pennsylvania, but something like that would have an impact across the country. And in the state case, they didn't say should as far as the criteria, um, but they did um, explain that and how these criteria were used to generate thousands of or a thousand um, alternative maps, none of which you know, if you recombined uh, precinct vote totals in the new designs um, led to the outcomes uh, that we had. In no case did, th did 13 Republicans win. 
um, a seat to which the defense said, well, you didn't know what our considerations were because they wouldn't tell them. They asked, like, what were all the considerations you took into account? Defense refused to say, but then used that as a way to attempt to discredit um, these experts, this expert's 1,000 alternative maps that in no case, you know, uh, they didn't divide as many counties. It was like half as many counties were divided as in the current map. Um, like we said, the the split of the congressional delegation in no case was uh, a 13-5. Um, and I think only very few even made it to 11 or 12 Republican uh, seats. So let me, let me follow up on that, Emily, because... Those listening may have that same question that, okay, uh, yes, uh, you know, the, in, in the introduction I mentioned that uh, as far as registration goes, there are 800,000 more Democrats than Republicans here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then you look at the congressional districts, but there are 13 Republicans compared to five Democrats. I'm, and I'm curious whether there was testimony in either case that that doesn't prove anything, that the defense said that doesn't prove anything because yeah. most well, Democrats are located in the urban areas, are kind of gathered together in certain areas, and the rest of the state is mostly rural and mostly registered Republican. So did that testimony come up in either case? So I would yeah. say that, I mean, the the case aside, registration is not the same as turnout, um, and in previous stories that I've done, the turnout in um, distressed cities in Pennsylvania is low, is much lower than the rest of the the, the state. Um, I would also say that Pennsylvania's voter registration or voter turnout overall has dropped by twice as many um, percentage points for midterm elections as the rest of the country since the 90s. Um, and you know we can get back to this, but some of the quantifiable, um, some of the attempts to quantify. Pennsylvania's um, map and show that it is extreme and perhaps very clearly over this line that hasn't been defined um, in the case law, uh, you know, that it it maybe speaks to that, too, in terms of voter apathy and tying that to. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, you said that that was part of the testimony in the federal case. <clears throat> yes. Uh, the defense uh, put up uh, two experts who uh, you know, argued argued that point that population is not distributed equally in Pennsylvania at all. That Democrats tend to um, live near more urban areas, and then Republicans are more spread out all across the state. So they said some of that imbalance, the thirteen five, uh, could be um, could be accounted for um, by that you know unequal distribution of population. Uh, one of their experts said, you know. Races in Pennsylvania should be more competitive, um, that, you know, eight out of the um, 18 seats should be up for grabs by Democrats. And, you know, he really pushed that maybe the Democrats aren't putting up good candidates, and that's why they're losing. So, I mean, they they definitely made arguments about that, you know, this isn't gerrymandering. Um, this is this is maybe more considered. You could more account the, the imbalance, the 13-5, um, as, you know, underperformance by the Democrats. That, also, that was their argument. I also wanted to make the point that, you know, we made the comment about registration not being the same as turnout. And um, so for our listeners, in the 2012 election, uh, Republicans did not win the majority of sta votes statewide, yet they did get the 13-5 split. However, in 14 and 16, they did get more than half. I think it was 54 percent statewide and then 55 percent. So not... 72%, which is the, the seat share um, in the congressional delegation, but still just so, although there are 800,000 more registered Democrats, that is not at least reflected in the statewide turnout. Well, geography, as I'm sure, right. again, as Lindsay was suggesting, and was the testimony, geography has a lot to do with sure. it. Uh, let's take one more call from Mike in Lewisburg. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning. Very good program. And I'd like to make three quick points. One, I was a candidate for the 10th Congressional District in 2016, so I experienced firsthand what it's like to run in a very gerrymandered district. And the 10th District, just to give someone a sense of the extremism, is the fact that if I were to drive from the southwestern part of my district, the 10th District in Lewistown, Mifflin County, to the extreme northeastern part in Milford, the drive is about three and a half to four hours. So that's a very big area to represent everyone uh, fairly and equally. 
And I think often what we hear in this discussion is the fact that, well, the Democrats would do this anyway. That may have been in the case in, in the past, but what's different today is computers, technology, GIS, statistics, and all of these algorithms have taken this to an extreme a level, and all you have to do is look at a map of the 7th Congressional District and or the 10th to visually see it. And Mike, you're, you're a Democrat, right? That's correct. Yeah. Hey, Mike, thank you very much for your call. You know, you would think that uh, having the technology available would make it a little bit easier to draw up lines. And that's been one of the arguments is that uh, that technology has not been used properly. But again, that's one of the the arguments that the the plaintiffs have made. Quickly, uh, Emily and Lindsay, we only have a, a minute or so left. Timelines for decisions on these cases. You've touched on them. Emily, what about the state case? So in the state case, uh, Judge Robson will issue a non-binding opinion um, and fact-finding record by the end of the year. And then in January, the state Supreme Court likely will schedule um, oral arguments, probably not a a full week um, like we had in in the Commonwealth Court, but and then rule, hopefully, uh, early next year. Lindsay, what about the federal case? Um, In the federal case, a three-judge panel uh, should... uh, come up with a decision probably before the end of the year, so, you know, within the next uh, few weeks. And um, if the plaintiffs are successful, um, they're expecting that it will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Lindsay Lazarski and Emily Previty are with uh, WITF, uh, WITF, and actually more than WITF, uh, HYY, Keystone Crossroads Collaborative. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Thanks for having, for having us, Scott. Scott. To explain a little bit better, Keystone Crossroads is a collaboration among WITF, WHYY in Philadelphia, WPSU, and WESA. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Libraries have always made an effort to evolve with media trends, whether it was lending CDs and DVDs to patrons in the 90s to providing computer and net access in the 2000s. Libraries have tried to stay ahead of the tech curve while still offering the print material the core borrowers demand. In 2018, libraries are looking to acclimate virtual reality headsets, musical instruments, 3D printers, and Wi-Fi hotspots into lending services. Boy, I tell you what, it's a little bit different than uh, what we think of the traditional library over the years. Joining us to talk about uh, the library of 2018 in Pennsylvania is Christy Brooker, who is executive director of the Pennsylvania Library Association. Ms. Brooker, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Laura O'Grady, director of library services for Derry Township's Hershey Public Library. Ms. O'Grady, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. If you have a question or a comment about today's library, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Libraries were once and probably in a lot of cases still are anchor institutions in communities and cities. Libraries are where people went to learn, where many kids learned to love books, and were gathering spaces for communities. But today, in many communities, the library doesn't have as big of a role. Now, we'll be talking about how libraries are modernizing But what happened over the years? Well, I think libraries have always been really good at adapting to the changes in the world around us, and and we continue to do that. While uh, libraries once were more of a repository for books, now we're having uh, more interactions, more collaborative space, opportunities for people to learn and attend programs. We're really a support system that uh, can complement the K-12 public education and then also be the resource prior to entering public school and after uh, when uh, for lifelong learning. I, you know, I don't want to suggest that uh, libraries have lost their relevancy, even though some people have because they'll say, well, why do I need to go to the library when all the information I need I can get on the Internet? And, you know, there are a lot of people who have said that. I've heard people actually, actually say that. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I also kind of expected you to say that one of the things that's happened is there are so many other 
alternatives. Well, one of the things that I think is important to remember about libraries, Scott, is that it's not just the books that they're providing, as you mentioned earlier, but one of the key resources is the internet access. And especially in rural Pennsylvania, there are so many places that do not have internet access, and the library is really that only place where students who are trying to do homework or people who are trying to apply for new jobs or upgrade their jobs or upgrade their workforce development skills can actually go have access to high-speed internet as well as a computer. You know, our young adults at this point, I, I come from a background in workforce development, and our young adults many times do not have a computer once they leave the K-12 to institution. And so for them to try to apply for a job on a smartphone, which is maybe their only internet access at home, is next to impossible. If you have to take yeah. a skills assessment test on a <laughs> smartphone... Well, I'm just picturing how that's near impossible. Yeah, it, yeah it, it really is impossible to do those things on a smartphone. So where do they go that has both the internet access and an actual computer? And the library is the answer for so many of those communities. And what they provide for that standpoint alone, you know, the Center for Rural Pennsylvania had a great study that they did that showed the lack of broadband access across Pennsylvania. And even here in our, you know, Harrisburg region, there are places that do not have Internet access. So that library is providing both that equipment and that technology. The other piece to it is the professional that is in the library. We, you know, talk about an Amazon warehouse, which is great. But Internet access and Google, a lot of people don't understand where to get things. And if you did a health search, for example, you'd have a million hits on whatever condition you might be concerned about you might have the symptoms of. But is that somebody who is ranting about their personal situation or somebody who's providing some sort of alternative opinion on things? Or is that a medical doctor that you're looking at what they're posting online? You know, I, I asked this question because it says a lot about how libraries have changed. Mm -hmm. But your backgrounds as librarians majoring in library sciences have obviously changed over the years. Yeah. In what mm -hmm. ways? Well, I think it's a lot more about um, public service. Uh, specifically, my background in public libraries, it's a lot of people think you work in a library, you get to read all day, or you've got, you know, how great to be around all those books. You're saying telling everyone to be quiet all day, right? <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> We're saying make noise. Let's make things. Um, I think it's much more about working with the public. You have to like people if you work in a public library. And so the people who go into this most, li most likely like people. They want to help people. And so as Christy was mentioning about the professionals, there's people who work in libraries with all range of backgrounds, not just library science. We certainly have professional librarians, but there's those with an education background or um, public administration background, fundraising a lot, hopefully for a lot of libraries, um, it's needed. And I think that that kind of mix of professionals really creates a dynamic environment where people can get so much more than they realize they could get. Laura, I have to admit that uh, I received a couple emails <laughs> over the last few months uh, recommending that you be on the program. Now, you oh, wow. have come to, in, into Hershey just this just past recently, year. Just recently, yes. But, uh, you know, one that said, oh, Laura Grady, she's cutting edge. Oh, okay? wow. Okay. So, it's flattering. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm going to ask you yeah. is... How does today's library, I was joking about mm -hmm. uh, shushing people and mm -hmm. telling them to be quiet. How is today's library, if someone hasn't been in a library yeah. in a few years mm -hmm. because they've been relying on um, the Internet, right. their smartphone, how's it different when you walk in the door than, say, three, four, five years ago? I would say the noise. It's it's not necessarily always quiet, um, which we're happy we're 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 happy to embrace that. I mean, people still do need a spot to for quiet study. Our quiet study area at Hershey is m one of the most popular areas because there's so many people uh, in in that township in that area who are studying for things. The medical center is right nearby. The school's right behind us. But um, the collaborative spirit that is now in libraries really encourages talking and conversation. Group meetings. Uh, our meeting room use has jumped. Um, Sixty-six percent each month. It's higher than the year or the month or the month before for last year. So it's just the 
people being in the library is what people want now. It's not necessarily just to go in and grab your book and leave. They want to be there and they want to find other people like-minded where who can inspire them or they can talk to and they work together. So noise is definitely a difference as well as technology. So uh, we just, as you mentioned, uh, got a virtual reality headset and we've had our board members come in and we've had the community come in to test it out. And it's just mind-blowing the possibilities. We're going to be getting an Apollo 11 simulation. Really? So uh, you can... Uh, When's that? I want to be yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like these these types of things um, are really changing the way people think about their library. And so all of a sudden it's, it's a destination that they... Um, they want to be coming to rather than something that they think is from the past. Well, speaking of what patrons wanted, you know, even the word patron sounds yeah, old-fashioned. Maybe I should People say use customers that. or members. Yeah. There's all sorts of ways. <laughs> Clients. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. But a survey by the Pew Research Center found that library users want expanded educational programs mm-hmm. that includes technology centers with 3D printers mm-hmm. and other digital tools and lessons on how to use them. They also want libraries to devote less space to books and more to community activities. Yep, right. First of all, I have to say that I'm a little bit sad to hear about the part of less space for books. I'm a guy who likes to hold books, but still... A 3D printer? Yeah, Scott, you know, it really is interesting. And I'll share a great story that's not necessarily local, but has happened in multiple places across Pennsylvania. Out in Peters Township Library, outside of Pittsburgh, there is a 3D printer there, and they've had it for a while. And there was an architect that, you know, typically when they're doing business, they're going to build a model, the old-fashioned, like, build it and then show the client this is what it's going to look like, and they're describing it. He went in and used their new 3D printer and built the model with the 3D printer. And he did this a couple of times. And ultimately, he found it to be of such value that he himself bought a 3D printer for his architectural business. And that success story, especially for millennials and entrepreneurs who are looking at ways to do a prototype or learn what they might be able to do for the future or even build the skills of how to use a 3D printer so that from a business standpoint, they can go back to their business and say, This is the value of the library. It's not just about the books, but the services and testing out the technology. And there are libraries that will let you check out different types of technology, kind of a try it before you buy it Mm -hmm. sort of scenario so that they can find out, is this really going to work for me in my business? Or you have an old-fashioned piece of equipment that you need a replacement part for, Mm -hmm. and they no longer make that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious. Uh, when I, I said, yeah, I'm kind of sad when that research shows that uh, less space for books, someone who, you know, when right. you, as that's what you grew up with. Does I mean, what what are librarians' thoughts on, or library boards' thoughts on less space for books and more for, te- for technology? Well, it's funny. There's less space for books, but that doesn't mean we have less books. We just have books that are accessed different ways. So um, we have streaming services where you can uh, get audiobooks or e-books or uh, movies or TV shows, um, e-books through um, many different um uh, platforms. So just because we don't have the physical book on the shelf doesn't mean we don't have access to it. And I think that certainly there's a, a bit of um, fear that the physical book will completely go away. But I think in most places around the state, physical books still outweigh all the other e- e-circulation. And it's not going to go away. It's going to be a blend for different abilities. People who have low vision or prefer or homebound, you know, this is really opening up access mm-hmm. to books rather than limiting it. Mm-hmm. The other part to that is we have the benefit of a statewide catalog here in Pennsylvania, where you can look at the catalog and see what library physically has a book that you might be interested in on maybe a regional history in Cambria County, for example. And you can log on at any library in Pennsylvania, see that statewide catalog, request that book, and through interlibrary loan, have that book delivered to your local library. You don't have to go there. You don't have to pay for shipping to have it come there. You can have it in that format, which would be that physical book. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot of what that recognition of our resources here in Pennsylvania are just amazing that statewide catalog, I forget the exact figure, but it includes also academic institution materials as well. Mm -hmm. So even as a public citizen, maybe not registered at one of our universities, you can still access some of those university materials. I'm curious, uh, a few weeks ago, and we do this every year, uh, we had our annual show where we 
talk about books being recommended mm-hmm. as gifts for mm-hmm. uh, the holiday season. And as I was researching that, one of the things I found is that uh, the percentage of people who are reading books online, ebooks, mm-hmm. has actually gone down in the last year or so. Do you see that in the library as well? Or is the expectation now that because this technology does exist in libraries, that, okay, I don't have to check out this book and bring it back in a week or so, mm-hmm. that I'm going to you know, access this online? So I, I won't cite any circulation statistics. Laura might be able to share for her library. But I would say that having access in all those different formats is important to have it in that ability. I would say that, you know, for me as a user, I tend to download an audio book as I get ready to take a trip across the state. And it's audio usually... books are still popular, very popular. Yeah, exactly. Gaining in popularity, yeah. from what I understand. And, yeah. and it was interesting. Last May, I went down to Washington, D.C. for one of our legislative action days. And a lot of the legislative aides are very much millennials and young adults. And I would ask them, like, do you have a local library card? Because many of them are from Pennsylvania. And they're like, oh, we can get books delivered from the Library of Congress. And I said, are you, you know, reading e-books? Is that easier for you? And they're like, oh, no. Millennials still want that high-touch mm-hmm. book as as well, and they really do enjoy and appreciate that. And I think that recognition of the value of the book itself is is awesome. That they still want to have the physical book. Mm-hmm. So, Laura? yeah, I think that um, the e version of books they're just going to be an alternate. Uh, format. It's not necessarily going to replace. I think that we still see that uh, the physical book is um, more popular right now. We last month we circulated about fourteen thousand physical items in our library and about two thousand digital items. Uh, materials. So it's way, way out of balance right now. And I think as we move forward and the the technology becomes more streamlined, maybe a little bit easier to use, maybe those will even out. But I, I just see it as one more way people can access a great story, not anything that's going to change the, the way we read fundamentally. If you have a question or comment about libraries, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at org. Christy, you used the word resources a few minutes ago. Now, you were using it in a different context. You were talking about resources that are available at libraries across mm-hmm. the state. But this question has to do with resources to fund libraries. I saw a story last night on television uh, about a local county that uh, is not able to provide funding that they have uh, over the years to their local libraries, their county libraries. So resources, how are you paying for this new technology? And maybe that brings up the whole question, the, the broad question of how are libraries funded in the first place? So in Pennsylvania, we are a commonwealth. And so there is not one universal answer to that, much as the same with our school districts, that we have some unique entities and organizations. Libraries, 85% of our public libraries in Pennsylvania are 501c3 nonprofit charitable organizations. And so for those institutions, they're going to rely on a combination of some state aid as well as local aid. And that might be depending on the demographics of what they are being supported by. They could be supported by multiple townships. They could be supported through a county millage uh, tax rate. They could be supported by a county appropriation or a township appropriation. But most of those public libraries are also relying, as Laura mentioned earlier, on fundraising, endowments, donors to provide the services that they have. And it is a real challenge here in Pennsylvania. You know, in some of our other states across uh, the U.S., they are quasi-government or government entities straight up. And there are those uh, libraries in Pennsylvania that do have that designation, but the majority are relying on serving their local community. And some of them are serving a very small community, and some of them are serving a very broad geographic region, but maybe not a densely populated one. So the funding is is a challenge. We are basically at the same level of funding in terms of state aid as we were in 2010. And of course, 2010 to 2017, going into 2018, expenses continue to rise. We really struggle with that. And libraries are running very lean. Mm -hmm. Nationally, the statistics are for every dollar that somebody invests in a library, they're going to get $5 back in services. And that is really an amazing return for our users and our citizens. And we do believe that libraries move all of Pennsylvania citizens forward in so many different ways in literacy in five different areas with our PA Forward initiative. 
but we do need the support of our communities. We do need those partnerships that Laura talked about to help provide the funding and resources. And some of that is federal funding that comes through the Institute of Museum and Library Services with some innovative technology-type grants. And so there are libraries that are applying for those grants to get 3D printers to provide new ways of doing things and workforce development skills. It is very unlikely that you would ever hear anyone say anything negative about the library. But with that said, are there people just like this county I was talking about uh, that have said that, you know, we just can't afford it anymore. We, we cannot make a contribution that we've made in the past because there are alternatives. Are there government bodies like that? Unfortunately, I think there is a lack of general awareness about what the value that the library brings to the community. And that's what we're doing today. Right, exactly. So, you know, those that think the library is just a book repository and haven't been in their library in a long time may not recognize all the programming, the access to government services, the fact that a library is open more than nine to five. So those people who are in need of additional support, they might not be able to get to a career link office to apply until eight o'clock at night because they might have a part-time job, but that's certainly not paying the bills. So for them to be able to go to their library at seven o'clock at night and apply for a job or apply for benefits, and especially our veterans being able to access their GI Bill benefits or apply for assistance through Medicare and Medicaid, they need access and support. So the resources that the library are limited to, it, it is a challenge from a staffing standpoint Libraries are struggling and need their support of those communities. And there may be competing, you know, other interests out there for their community. But where's the community center? Yeah. The library. Well, and that's, you know, I wish we had more time. I'm almost out of time as, as it is. I wanted to talk about a gathering space. In fact, I'm going to say right here on the air, we would like to do a live smart talk at a library. Okay. You want to come to Hershey? I, <laughs> we we, we'll take it, you. We'll take that invitation <laughs> right here. And, uh, you know, I have other people I have to work with. But, uh, <laughs> there are I, lots of great we, libraries we've, around yeah, here. We've, we've talked about it on the air. So in about uh, 20 seconds or less, uh, what message would you like, uh, Laura? Mm-hmm. people know about libraries. Um, I heard a great um, quote recently that said libraries used to be grocery stores and now we need to be ki- we need to be kitchens. So people need to make stuff. I want to thank uh, our guest, Christy Bruker, who is Executive Director of Pennsylvania Library Association, Laura O'Grady, Director of Library Services for Derry Township's Hershey Public Library. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much. This is our uh, last program of, uh, live program of uh, 2018. There is no Smart Talk tomorrow. Next week, we look back at the top stories of 2017 on Smart Talk. To all our loyal Smart Talk listeners, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And be sure to tune in uh, coming up next week for the top stories of 2017. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com.